Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have an amazing guest and Mr. James Cook, the National Director of Brokerage at Yale Realty and Capital Advisors. Before we dive in, I wanna ask you a real quick favor. Would you mind taking an extra 30 seconds and heading over to iTunes to rate this podcast with five stars? This helps us get more listeners and it means the absolute world to me. So thanks for making my day with that review of the show. All right, let's dive in. James's primary focus at Yale Realty and Capital Advisors is assisting buyers and sellers of quality manufactured home communities and RV resorts. Yale handles everything from confidential displacements to running full marketing and the call for offers process. Yale focuses on institutional grade communities ranging from 50 to 1,000 plus site portfolios. Uh, having successfully closed on the sale or financing of roughly $1 billion in production, uh, it would be hard-pressed to find a more experienced or capable broker in this niche asset class. James, welcome to the show. Andrew, good to be on the show. And I've uh, I've rarely heard voices that belong more on the radio than mine. So uh, good job, man. Now I know why you get in the podcast business. Oh, man, I love it. Thank you for that. Uh, James, would you mind starting out by telling us your story and how you got into manufactured housing communities? Yeah, I think like you, um, started out in residential briefly as a uh, as a fresh licensee, got encouraged to get into real estate by my kind of my best friend's dad, who was a successful developer and residential agent when I was really young. He, I mean, he talked us both into getting our licenses at 18 and was still running a family business at the time. And I think I realized early on, I didn't want to be in the residential business. It was um, a little more of an emotional business. It was, um, you know, it did fine in it, but realized it was just, it was a lot of just uh, kind of emotion and, and didn't seem to have a lot of rationale why people did certain things in uh, the residential world. And I've always been in, in investment and, and very interested in investments and numbers and, and, you know, just enjoy the math side of the business and, and returns and things like that. So, that's, I think, originally why I started looking around at, at investment real estate, ultimately ran across a owner in my hometown where I grew up in North Florida, who had a, um, a you know, mid-sized manufacturing home community. I took at that time, it was like a pocket listing. I put it on, an, I think, an early version of LoopNet, and my phone rang off the hook. And I said, okay, this is an industry where there's a lot of investors looking to get in, and there's a need to go out there and find more of these community owners that are looking to sell. And so at, at about 21, I went full-time into just brokering manufactured home communities. Wow. And when was that first listing, that first mobile home park listing? 2005. 2005. Wow. And I don't, I don't know what it was. I think it was the early version of LoopNet, but my phone rang off the hook. And, you know, back then it was, we were, we were in a scrappy business as you might, you know, might, might imagine. I mean, it was, you didn't have all the big funds. And this was, this was a, it was a decent size, what became an institutional size asset. At the time, you know, when I would call the big operators in 2006 and seven and eight, they didn't want to touch anything below 250 spaces. And now, you know, they're, they're happy to buy a hundred space park in a good location. So, you know, at the time I was dealing with a lot of smaller mom and pop investors and, you know, people were specifically looking to buy mobile home parks because they could get, you know, special terms, owner financing. It wasn't as competitive 
and much like it is today, was less competitive than uh, multifamily, but we've we've came a long ways. There's, you know, there's there's a whole different profile of buyers, and we could talk about that at some point. But I'll let you kind of stick with your uh, with your questions. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Maybe you can tell us about Yale. I know you have a a big team on the capital side as well. You know, maybe just just introduce us a little bit. Of course, yeah. So somewhere in 2008, when the market started correcting with the Great Financial Crisis. I guess the residential mortgage bubble popped. I started noticing that financing was really the tail that wagged the dog. You know, if you didn't have financing, you didn't have a deal. And um, you know, owner financing is great, but a lot of the sellers want to cash out. And their their thoughts are is they're going to run it as long as they can run it. And, and if they sell, they don't want to be have any contingent liabilities with the property. They don't want to worry about what happens to it after they sell. And so. You know, at that point, I actually asked my assistant to start calling banks, and we started compiling banks that would do this, uh, that would finance these. It, it went well. I, you know, I learned about agency financing. I did some agency financing at the time. Found a couple of balance sheet lenders that liked this space, and and we kind of sold a couple of banks in the space, and that was what was facilitating deals 2008, 2009, 2010. And I had a couple pocket buyers that had you know, deep pockets, and a couple of you know really close clients that had deep pockets, credit facilities still. You know, GE was still running a credit facility at the time, which was, was very, you know, productive. And around 2012, moved down to Miami, met Chris San Jose, you know, early on in that, I guess late 2011, I moved down here, met Chris San Jose, who was a fresh grad from, uh, you know, with a real estate and finance uh, double major, hired him. And, and, and we quickly realized that he would just be a really good fit for that, that side of the business. So we've, uh, he, he's since built that business. I know he's financed a couple hundred parks himself now. And I'm, I'm, I know his, his financing volume has been in excess of a billion dollars. And then we, you know, around 2014 or 15, we started layering in regional directors because at the time I was still, you know, servicing primarily Florida. And I would get calls from guys to fly out to Arizona and work on a deal or fly, you know, fly to New York and go work on a deal. And so, you know, I realized that there's just such a need for specialization, not only in the asset class, but in the region, because you have different states with different laws, you have, you know, different operators and different kind of um, regional players that I just, it was impossible for one person to kind of know all the major players. So, you know, fast forward to 2022, we've just hired our 11th regional director. So we've got somebody actually covering the New England market, specifically, you know, New Hampshire, Maine, Rhode Island, Connecticut. And, you know, we think we've got the rest of the country covered with 10 other directors, including myself down in Florida still. And I know we closed deals. I have to look, we probably closed deals in you know, over 30 states last year between wow. the broker and the financing division. I think we, we financed and sold about 115 parks, right around 15,000 sites um, last year. That, that's amazing. And I, I get your marketing emails and I see you guys selling stuff at like three and a half caps. So maybe let's just talk about the elephant in the room here. I mean, how are these buyers right now able to pay some of the pricing they're able to pay? And you know, where do you, where do you see that going into the foreseeable future? Sure, sure, good question. You know, I think I think um, we're all wondering, you know, where cap rates are going to go with interest rates, you know, almost doubling. You know, it's 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 a good question. You know, we were borrowing in the threes, and now, you know, I haven't got a rate check with Chris in a, in a couple of days, but I got to imagine your best possible financing is going to be in the mid fours, and your really your par financing from a, a you know three star kind of smaller deal is going to probably be in the upper fours to five percent range. So it'll be interesting to see kind of where it shakes out. You know, one thing that we've all benefited from, you know, across really the whole country has been the lack of housing. You know, as it was in a in a presentation recently that Blackstone did, and 
they brought up the fact that America's 5 million homes undersupplied. And so we've got this kind of, you know, you've got two factors that are colliding. You've got a rising cost of capital, but you've still got a se severe undersupply of housing. And we've been benefiting from it without really processing kind of where all that was coming from. Owners have been getting away with, with extraordinary rent increases the last, probably, you know, really ever since COVID. You know, we, we were in that fetal position for the first six months of COVID. And then I think by the end of 2021, it became very clear there was a mass migration out of inner cities and, and out of apartment you know, complexes to detached housing, manufactured housing fit into that. And I don't care if you were in Ohio or you were in California or Florida, you just saw a massive increase in demand. So any states that weren't rent controlled were getting away with pretty large rent increases. I think the norm was all of a sudden seven, eight, nine, 10%. And you, know, you do that a couple of years in a row and it looks really good, especially if you continue to borrow at 3% or three and a half. So you know, we all should have expected that party was going to end at some point. And, you know, I think we're, we're now paying a little more, you know, fair cost for, for capital. I'm a little worried they're going to overshoot. I'm, I'm worried that rates are going to get, get too high. And then I think they're going to come back down at some point once they slow the, the, the machine down a little bit. So we'll, we'll kind of muddle, you know, we'll kind of see where, where that goes. But, you know, realistically, I'm actually worried that the midsize investor is going to be the one that gets hurt the worst because I believe from everything we're seeing, the institutional investors going to keep moving because they've got trillions yeah. of dollars stacked up on the sidelines, you know, and, and that money's got to be placed and they're going to kind of look through the storm and say, okay, this is going to shake out and we're going to continue to have an undersupply housing and rents are going to continue to go up. And so it looks like as of right now, that money's going to keep, you know, plowing into the space. Will, will these three cap deals keep happening on these, you know, or sub three cap deals, you know, maybe maybe those will, will slow up a little bit, but I think that for the, the the middle of America deal, if you're buying in the kind of four to six range and you are finding value and you're finding you know areas to lease up spaces and, and and improve the community and raise rents, even on turnover, I think that those deals are going to continue to happen and investors like you are going to continue to do well with those over the long run because you know, we're going to see you know cost of housing is going to increase and, and therefore rents are going to increase. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Could you speak a little bit on 2008 to, you know, 2011 uh, during the Great Recession? You know, what did the mobile home park industry look like at that time? And, you know, how, what were some of the negative effects that were, that were felt in manufactured housing? Manufactured housing suffered its own crisis, which was the chattel lending crisis about the time I got in the space. So there you know, there was a couple of things. You had a fair amount of foreclosures of mobile homes going on before, you know, before really the great financial crisis. You had, at one point, you had people handing out all this lending to people, to, or you had lenders handing out all this lending to consumers to buy mobile homes. And so you had a bunch of homes bought by people who couldn't afford them. Um, and chattel lending kind of blew up before the great financial crisis. So when I got into space, especially in kind of the middle of the country, you had a fair amount of vacancy. You had homes you could buy from the lenders for a good price. And, you know, guys were even still poaching, you know, buying homes out of people's parks, pulling them into their park. It was kind of a scrappier business. But somewhere around 2009, 2010, we kind of caught our, I think we caught our footing. And this industry just really took off. If you looked at it, I, I think there was, you know, 2007, 2008, when I first started the business, we had maybe, you could count on one hand, the number of real institutional funds in the space. Today, there's somewhere between 80 and 100 that have over a billion dollars of, of, of assets under, under management. And some of these groups literally have hundreds of millions or even billions available to invest in the space. 
So we've went from five to probably nearly a hundred funds investing in the space. And from the consumer standpoint today, you know, almost every manufacturing home community in any viable market ran by a competent operator is well occupied. The biggest challenge owners have is they can sell homes the day they get them. It's either finding used homes and finding the labor to fix those up and then, you know, getting them ready to sell. Or it's, it's, the, it's the fact that the supply chain is so messed up that you can't get a new home for almost a year. So yeah. I think those are the challenges that, you know, we're seeing today back then. You had some vacancy, you know, rents for the homes are lower, prices for the homes are lower, you know, and, and we were having to owner finance homes and, you know, somewhere in, in um, you know, I guess when the Obama administration came in, then they, they, they tried to ban, you know, owner financing essentially. So we had to, you know, owners either had to get some additional licensing or hire a third party, you know, mortgage servicer to handle those or do owner, you know, do rent to own and some different techniques to work around that. So, you know, I guess we've been through a lot of different challenges, but yeah. in the end, our industry has always seen steady growth. You know, I remember looking at financials from 07 to 08, and we really didn't see a drop. And then 08 to 09, we would see, you know, growth in 09 to 10. We, we kept seeing growth on, on people's P&Ls, you know, year over year. It was just different challenges, whether it was finding homes, whether it was, you know, you know, buying foreclosed homes, fixing them up and, and the problems kind of move around, but the industry has always been steady and stable and, and um, you know, I think it's a safe place to invest. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's great feedback there. What do you feel is like the best opportunity or strategy right now for operators in the space to, you know, create a good return on, on, uh, on investment for people? You know, I think, again, there's two programs. There's the groups that are just aggregating assets, really, you know, folks like you've probably bought and fixed up, and they're going to roll those up into portfolios, continue to find economies of scale, continue to raise rents, and then and then probably sell those off in a larger portfolio or to a REIT or to a, a major fund that might want to go public. And, you know, the, so you kind of, just like any other business, you have different folks in different stages of the, uh, of the cycle. If you're kind of buying that one to $10 million range, you're really buying off of your, your typically your, your mom and pop again, or maybe an aggregator that bought an asset that's not in their wheelhouse. They bought it either in a portfolio or it's not near their, their, their kind of their core you know, base or, or it's, it's too far away for some reason. And so you're going to follow up on somebody who has not maximized occupancy, who has not improved these communities. And it, it's just the, it's the old business model to find a, a community that's under, under maintained, under rented. You know, usually the majority even of our sales, you know, even still today are, are for longtime owners. And I think mm-hmm. there's that, there's kind of that, that almost like a, a curve of, of you get in the business, you build the thing, you're interested in it. And then as, as that investor ages, maybe they build it in their 40s or 50s. And then when they hit their 60s or 70s, they're, you know, they've got other interests in life. They want to go, you know, spend more time with their family or travel or semi-retire. And maybe the kids aren't involved yet. And so they, their, their interest wanes, they're not keeping rents at market, they're not maintaining the community, and they're letting some vacancy creep in. And those are the opportunities that I think, you know, aggregators can find and improve and find some economies of scale and, and, and do well with individually. And then, of course, like we talked about, you know, if you assemble a few of those, you get inherent cap rate compression. And maybe touch on that a little bit. You know, you mentioned like a portfolio and aggregating a portfolio, maybe t- touch on like you know, the benefit and, and how much lower of a cap rate operators could expect uh, aggregating a portfolio and, and maybe what matters most, right? Is it a location play, you know, having uh, economies of scale in a certain market 
or is it having similar quality? You know, is that important when aggregating a portfolio or is it size, right? Like if you have, you know, a bunch of 30 lot mobile home parks, is that obviously not going to be as valuable as a bunch of hundred plus lot mobile home parks? Right, right. You know, what I found in this business is, is unfortunately, there's no rules that stick. There's a portfolio that's selling right now in the Midwest and it's, it's a bunch of 50 and 60 space parks. Now they're granted, they're mostly in one state, and for a long time, that was kind of thought of as non-institutional and it's, it's trading to an institutional player. So again, when I got into business in 2005, mm. and then full-time in 2007, we had, you know, the rule was you had to be over 200 spaces. And then it went to 150. So I think it went 250, 200, 150, 100. And now we're down to, you know, frankly, there's been a lot of consolidation in 50 space communities. I don't know where that, again, I don't know where that, where we just stop and just say, look, it doesn't make sense to own communities below the certain size if you're at all an institutional investor. But, you know, in a perfect world, yeah, you're building a portfolio of probably a thousand spaces in a region. And that region could be the Southeast, it could be the Mid-Atlantic, it could be the Northeast, you know, any region of the country. But I think a thousand spaces really gets a lot of attention. And obviously, the closer it gets in, in proximity to each other and the larger the individual assets are, the lower that cap rate is going to go. But, you know, along the way, when you're acquiring those, again, if you're buying them off that typical 40-year hold, first generation aged out or second generation inherited it, you're immediately walking into usually 10 to 15 to 20% rent growth off the bat, you know, within two or three years that can be accessed. I would say the, the, the norm, you know, maybe closer to 20 to 30%. Then you're walking into some economies of scale that you should have between multiple assets you're walking into some vacancy that you can fix over time. So you're getting those operational, you know, improvements automatically. So even if cap, even if your, your acquisition cap rate was a five and your exit cap rate was a five, you'd still make money. But what we've seen traditionally is, is you know, you, you could probably answer the question better than me, what you've kind of seen in your, you know, acquisitions, but you're, you're probably acquiring mostly, you know, in that four and a half to six and a half cap range, depending on where it is, region, quality, size, all that. And then as a portfolio, we've seen most of these portfolios of kind of three-star assets trade down to around the four cap range. You know, if, if you're talking about 500 spaces or greater, you know, preferably a thousand, you know, and there are outlier deals that are trading in the threes and there are outlier deals that have traded in the twos, just depending on the story. But I think, you know, for the majority of the people on this call or that are going to be watching this, you're going to be talking about kind of 100 to 100, you know, or 75 to 150 space assets you know, single wide assets, um, you know, in, in, in kind of tier two, tier three cities, those are going to, you know, gonna, you're going to buy them and probably get a hundred to 150 basis point, you know, cap rate compression on the exit. If you, aggregate, yeah. you know, a thousand spaces. Yeah, that's awesome. That's, that's my, well, that was my ballpark. So that was good to confirm that James, this is something I ask all my guests. What are the most important things that passive investors, you know, we're talking limited partners here, what do you think are the most important things they need to look out for when investing into mobile home parks? You know, I'm an investor in maybe 30 to 35 LPs, multifamily manufactured housing and RV. And, you know, obviously the number one thing is the operator, you know, and so I think it comes down to investing with a competent operator with a competent business plan. You know, I think one thing that I always liked, Andrew, my, my, when I heard your story about you going to live in a community <laughs> and learning the uh, the business from that side, 
I've had people, you know, really my entire career saying, oh, we'll just throw a bunch of money at you. Why don't you go buy all these assets and, and operate them? You know, my approach was, you know, I want to win this business. I want to be in the brokerage side for a long time. I'm not in a rush to compete with my clients. You know, I've had the opportunity to invest in deals with, with folks, had the opportunity to buy a couple of deals on my own, you know, or, or with, with a limited group of partners that we just didn't feel like we were competing. The seller didn't want to list it, didn't want us to represent them and was reasonable on pricing. And it was just too obvious uh, or, or easy to pass up. But in general, I'm scared of that side of the business because it's operation intensive and you need to be full-time focused on it. And I think that, so you, know, you got to pick a partner that has the, the team to execute that business model. And then, you know, you want to be investing with people with ethics. And, you know, at the end of the day, they got to be, they got to be, you know, decent operators, good operators, and they got to be just good overall people with a track record that you're comfortable. You're not going to, you're not going to have to chase your money because in this business, it, you know, it's mostly basically reputation, you know, you know, credit is what you're running on. I mean, you've got a, you've got a share of a deal, but thankfully, you know, across the probably 40 deals I've invested in from end to end, we've never had anybody run off with our money or, or, or mishandle our money. We've made, you know, very little money in some deals. We've made incredibly strong returns on other deals. So I think it's obvious. You, you want to you look at, at their, the operator's track record. You want to look at kind of their, you know, you want to get a, a, a synopsis of their last maybe three or four full cycle deals, if they've had some, and, and find out what their acquisition price was, what the exit was, what those investors made in that hold, kind of what the return was. You know, and I think you just set your expectation that, you know, you're going to average somewhere around your pref return plus a few percent. And be you know be be pleasantly surprised if it ends up being you know kind of you know, mid teens to to low twenties on an exit you know either which way if you're making over over five percent you're beating anything you can do you know pretty much in the passive world you know so if you're investing with with a good operator a good honest group you're going to be pretty happy with this industry overall. That's great feedback, James. What does the perfect mobile home park look like in your eyes, and why? You know, I've always said every deal's got some amount of here. If it's not the property, it's probably the owner or the financials or the government. There's always some here on it. You know, there's got to be a universal, you know, there's that the hot crazy matrix. There's got to be one for parks. Like, <laughs> if it's too good of a deal, there's a problem. You know, resident-owned homes are ideal. Be in an area with with at least, you know, steady economic underlying uh, fundamentals, you know, I think large enough lots to facilitate, you know, at least, you know, 66 foot homes or greater, at least, you know, 14 wides, but ideally 16 wides to get modern, you know, three bedroom, two bath homes in there. Those are things that we look for. But again, there's a million exceptions. If it's an urban infill location in, you know, Orlando, Miami, Tampa, uh, you're in a major MSA anywhere in the country. I don't care if you're, in, you know, you know, Albany, New York, or you're in, you know, St. Louis, Missouri, you could definitely fill a park with older homes because it's all about convenience and you can gear that towards seniors. But in general, you know, larger lots that could fit, you know, modern, at least single wides, uh, off street parking, you know, we're never lucky enough to, to get those deals that we invest in, it seems like, but city utilities are great. I'm not afraid of private utilities. In fact, often, you know, you can provide private utilities for $10 a lot and you're getting really $50 of value in your rent out of it. Water and sewer, mm-hmm has a $50 retail value, maybe 60, maybe 70, maybe 80, maybe 90 in some major cities. And I've, you know, a a well-ran treatment plan and well, you know, that's checked out and diligence properly by a good operator like yourself is is a good play. But, you know, in a perfect world, again, if you're asking me for my Christmas wish list, give me city utilities, give me, you know, (laughs) 
hopefully they're not metered yet and I can just throw a meter on them and, 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 and get that expense passed off to the resident and, and free up some capital that way, get my NOI up. And then, yeah, you know, ideally it's over a hundred units, but you know, if it's, if it's, if your lot rents are strong and it's in a good market, at least 50 units. And, you know, I think the biggest thing that you got to look at when looking when buying these communities, and I know you learned this, you've learned this the easy way and the hard way is what's under the ground. You know, mm. It's not what you see that gets you. It's what you don't see. It's the water and sewer lines and the electric infrastructure. You know, are the, is it, are you talking about terracotta clay that's in really bad shape? Can you, re, can you reline it? Do you have to replace it? And then some of those old water lines, if they're, um, is it galvanized or copper? They can be, they can be problematic. And so I think, you know, knowing those things going in, kind of building in for your worst case scenario and your model of, you know, oh my gosh, those utility lines run under my streets. And if I'm yeah. going to work in those, I'm going to have to tear up all my streets, replace them all, and then replace my streets. You know, that's a half a million dollar to a million and a half dollar problem on a, on a small park. So those are the things you got to know about. You know, again, a lot of guys have had dumb luck in this business and, and you probably have bought a bunch of communities. And I know guys have bought 10, 20, 30 communities and, and never really had to do a full overhaul, but that can bite you sometimes. Those are, so, you know, give me P. If, you know, if I'm, if I'm again, writing down my Christmas wish list, give me PVC utilities, fully redone, you know, all schedule 40, you know, those are, those are ideal things that you'd like to see in a community. Um, oh, 100% agree with you, James. Yeah, I, I learned the hard way. And I was talking with an LP earlier uh, this week. And, you know, I told him every single deal that we've bought, we've learned something and added to our due diligence checklist. Like, so, so that's the value of, a, you know, an operator that has a track record, right? Because you learn from every single deal. Well, yeah. So when you're getting in the business, you had the benefit of you're learning, but you're buying at a higher cap rate. So, yeah. you know, one of my things I've learned is, you know, sometimes you can, you can actually rule yourself out of deals. It's, it's kind of like, you know, meeting a 50 year old bachelor who just nobody will ever be good enough for him because he's got so many rules. You know, you, you can... I don't buy parks with this. I don't buy parks with that. I don't buy parks with this. And I'm like, if I look at your portfolio, you wouldn't acquired, you wouldn't have acquired anything you own and wouldn't have made anything you've made, you know, based on your stiff criteria. So you have to, you know, have to pretty much go in with the mindset that everything has a, you know, has a value. And I'm willing to buy almost any situation, but it just has to be price adjusted. So mm -hmm. perfect park, all the bar boxes checked, you know, I'm going to be paying a cap rate that's going to look like the interest rates, maybe even a little lower if there's room to remove the rents. And then as it, as you, um, as you get away from that, you should get a little bigger yield or just have more upside to compensate for it. That's a great way to look at it. James, I'm going to cut us off here. We'll go all day, man. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Tons of golden nuggets for our listeners. Uh, if anyone would like to get a hold of you or check out Yale advisors, what's the best way for them to do so? So our website's just yaleadvisors.com. Uh, I think all of our contact information's on there. In general, we, we try to work with, you know, end, end part buyers. So if you're looking for a good group to invest with, I'd say do your research. You know, from what I know of Andrew, they do a great job. I've seen them do some great turnarounds. And I, you know, I would definitely give them my endorsement. If you're, if you're looking to buy manufactured home communities or you own one or 10 and you need to refinance, you know, please reach out to us. If you're looking to, um, if you have an asset and you want to talk about repositioning it or how you're going to maximize the value or, or you're just looking to sell, we'd love to help. Um, go to yelladvisors.com. All of our information's there. 
you get a nifty little map. You can kind of see where everybody's at. And also you click on the team. And, and if, if you need to just shoot me an email, my name, James at YaleAdvisors.com. And, and I'll put, you know, point you in the right direction. Andrew, thanks for having me on the show. Great to, uh, good to catch up, man. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. That's it for today, folks. Thank you so much for tuning in. Cheers. Hey, are you getting value out of this show? If so, would you mind please going over to iTunes and leaving the show a quick five-star review? I have a goal of hitting over a hundred five-star reviews by the end of 2021. And it would mean the absolute world to me if you could help contribute to that. Thanks ahead of time for making my day with your five-star review of the show.